In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show is Touch Matters by Michael Benisi. Touch matters, handshakes, hugs, and the new science on how touch can enhance your well-being. Thought this book looked interesting, uh, looking at how humans benefit from touch or the science related to touch. I've also seen some articles, reports, looking at touch and how we've lost some of that connection. Of course, during the COVID crisis, we were physically separated from each other, so we were all getting a lot less physical touch. Also, I've seen some things on men related to touch and how due to homophobia, oftentimes men will have less physical touch with each other because they might not be comfortable or feel comfortable with it. But you'll see images of of men, even let's say athletes who would be considered quote unquote masculine, and they are very comfortable physically touching each other, even sitting in each other's laps or hugging in ways that we might think uh, now would not be acceptable. So we've seen a decrease in touch. And so I thought it'd be interesting to read a book looking at this very important human experience. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is Make Your Art No Matter What by Beth Pickens. Make Your Art No Matter What, Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles. And Beth Hickens is a, uh, a an art uh, therapist. Well, I should say it a different way. She's a therapist for artists or does lots of therapy for artists. She has a master's degree in counseling psychology, um, but has worked for many years with artists, helping them um, understand themselves better and also to express themselves more and do their art. And so she wrote uh, another book called Your Art Will Save Your Life, and this is um, her next book, Make Your Art No Matter What. And as the subtitle says, Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles, each of 12 chapters looks at one hurdle that she has identified with many of her clients. So she uh, looked at all the issues that come up in getting in the way of artists, getting their work done and getting to their art. And there were 12 main themes that she identified in each chapter um, is devoted to one of them. And so artist, uh, she gets into what does it even mean to be an artist? And she says, uh, what is my definition of an artist? The quick and dirty is this. Artists are people who make art, which sounds self-explanatory in a way or seems very simplistic, but really it makes it so that more people are included in that. Doesn't mean someone that necessarily, and she gets into this, um, gets makes a living with their art, meaning that's all they do for money and don't do anything else, or that they even get paid for their art. You don't have to get paid for your art to be an artist or to create art. And so this can be for many people who are 
uh, listening or interested. It doesn't just mean people who consider themselves artists only or that's all they do. It could be one aspect of what you do personally, professionally, um, or even one aspect of something you do to get paid, but doesn't even have to be that. So I thought that was um, interesting and important to keep in mind. I myself, I would say, okay, I, I'm an artist too, because there's some things I do that um, are creative or have an artistic side, and I want to actually do more of them. That was one of the reasons I uh, was drawn to this book. And so uh, she also early in the book talks about how she thinks artists have three fundamental needs. Um, so the first one is artists need to make their work. This is uh, directly from the book. So please be sure to spend time each week in a creative practice, whatever that means for you. So the first fundamental need for artists is to create their work. Um, the second, she talks about how artists need a community of other active, active artists who want good things for themselves and one another. And this comes up throughout the book, the importance of relationships in general, but also relationships to other artists and how that can be uh, very important. And as she puts it here, a fundamental need for artists. And the third one is that artists must take in art and information in every form. So she says, spending time with others' work, the work of others, will do for your creative interior what vitamins do for your body. Go out into the world and have experiences. So um, different types of artistic experiences and experiences in general. Uh, those are the three fundamental needs that she uh, feels that all artists have. So looking at some of these uh, different topics or themes that she thinks are big issues for artists and getting their, their work done or getting to their art, the first one is time. And that was an interesting chapter, uh, looking at how artists use time, don't use their time, how they can feel like they don't have enough time, or sometimes they might feel like their time is unstructured or too unstructured to get themselves to do the work. So time is a, a key uh, roadblock or can be something that gets in the way. She even gets into some of the myths that people have regarding time. Things like if I just had, you know, six months to do nothing but my art, I would get so much done. And she shares how some people who find themselves in this type of an experience, whether it's that they have wealthy family members or parents and they don't have to work so they have nothing to do but their art so to speak they might have a hard time getting to the work or someone who goes on one of these artists retreats um, and they can spend just a month or two months focusing on their art they sometimes have a hard time as well it's not just having the time um, that is the issue or even I'm reminded of the COVID pandemic and how everyone thought I'm going to do a million things now that I have all this free unstructured time and most of us didn't do much other than maybe make sourdough bread and some of us didn't even do that. So we see that time is a concept and a construct that does exist. Uh, you know, I'm not getting into like the metaphysics of it, but it is something that we can make into a lot of different things. And so if we think we don't have enough time, often we need to take a closer look at what we do. And she actually talks about that, take an inventory and really break down everything you're doing every day for a week or for a month, and you'll likely find pockets of time that you can devote to your work. Uh, and sometimes people find that when they're busier, it's easier to get to their creative work or get to other work. If you have certain windows of time, it actually helps. Um, a friend of mine, um, she has two baby twins who are uh, two years old, and she's writing a book and works on some other things. And she's really good at managing her time and something that she does is she told me she'll write while the, the babies are sleeping taking a nap 
that's one of her writing times. And so um, she's someone who I consider incredibly busy and having her hands full with two babies, but still makes the time or finds these windows and pockets that she's devoted to her art. And I think that's wonderful. And that's a way that she's found to to get her work done. So um, time is a big obstacle people often have, but it's such a mental roadblock. Uh, we, we can think more time will help us, but often the blocks are something else. And those are what some of the other chapters are about. Uh, one chapter is called Asking. And so she shares how she sees artists having a hard time often asking for help or asking for support or connections, uh, especially in the art world. You'll need to know the right people or need to know someone who could open doors for you or uh, connect you to someone or help you write a grant or whatever it might be. Uh, but she says she finds often artists that she works with have a hard time to ask, even asking a friend for something that might be a minor favor might be very difficult for them. Um, there's other ones like money. Fear is a huge one. I would think that's, uh, to me, such a big roadblock for people. It's interesting. You know, We fear all sides of it. We fear becoming successful. We fear becoming rejected and everything in between can be scary to put yourself out there. So uh, sometimes it can be obvious that fear of rejection, but we might not think of the fear of succeeding, but that can be scary uh, in its own way. So uh, I think it's very not surprising that fear was its own chapter here. She had a chapter on education, you know, looking at is it important to um, get a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in art do you, should you do that or should you not? And what I appreciated about that chapter is that she didn't say yes or no. And often we're looking for those kinds of answers. We want someone just to tell us what to do. Is it worth it? You know, that might be the question. Is it worth it to get my uh, bachelor's degree or to go pursue my master's in art or not? And the way I felt that chapter um, was presented by her was looking at the different components, aspects from what you're doing, time, money, taking on student loan debt, where you are in your life and other factors to help you make your correct decision. But she said it's not um, a, a black and white, you should or you shouldn't. And I really appreciated that approach because I find that much more meaningful. It's not as conclusive and as definitive as people would want. And when they're feeling so anxious, people sometimes just want someone to tell them this is the way to do it and you have to do it that way. Um, but especially when you're writing a chapter that's directed towards a general audience, I think it can be uh, overly simplified to just say it's this or that. And you'll see videos that say school is a waste of money or you have to go to school and neither of them will be true for everyone. So you have to figure it out for yourself. As I've said before, no one can do the thinking for you and no one can do the, the choosing and the deciding for you when it comes to your life. You're going to have to do that and figure it out yourself. Doesn't mean you have to do it alone without any consultation or education and learning more about the different things that are uh, the different options available to you, but you will at the end have to make your own decision and that's a good thing. I mentioned you don't have to do it alone. There's a whole chapter on isolation. And I thought this one was quite interesting because um, she shared well, how a lot of artists can be feel isolated um, and even sometimes their work can make them feel that way or aspects of their work. But then she made a distinction in this chapter between isolation and solitude and so isolation can be something that feels very painful this very to me kind of this empty cold feeling whereas solitude 
Um, she says in the Oxford English Dictionary is defined as the state of being or living alone. And so she says that sounds rather serene. So we can feel that there's a sense of a choice there and wanting to be alone. And actually another way she gets into the sense of being connected when we're in isolation, we feel really disconnected from everyone, even ourselves. We might be wallowing in some sadness or pain, um, but still, you generally, you'll feel very disconnected. Whereas with solitude, we likely are connecting even more deeply with ourselves. So she was sharing that, again, going back to this, um, it's not black or white. It's not that you shouldn't be alone or you should be alone uh, for extended periods of time. It depends on how you're being alone. There's a big difference between isolation and solitude and so she says if someone is in solitude great she thinks it's good to give them that space but when they're in isolation and it's one of her clients she actually will help them come up with a plan of how to break out of that or help them get out of that so i found that to be a a quite interesting uh, chapter looking at isolation then there's a a chapter on marketing and i uh, had a moment that i really resonated with this part um, of the book this chapter she talks about how a lot of artists will have a hard time marketing themselves and that she's had clients who really feel like they can't do it or they cringe at it or they avoid it at all costs. She also shares how there is this sense that, you know, especially in older times before the internet, that it was cool to come across an artist or to be kind of this undiscovered underground artist that no one really knows about and also not being promoted by a big label or a corporation, um, but how she shares that that's really generally not the case and how things uh, will go. And she shares about her own challenges promoting her own uh, first book and how that was not easy. Uh, but something that she shared here that I thought was interesting, she said, I found a correlation. The artists that loathe marketing also loathe asking for things. And naturally, this is true. Promoting oneself amounts to asking for a moment of attention or taking up space. And I related to that because um, in some ways I've been fortunate when it comes to things like my practice. I haven't had to do marketing the ways that many therapists have because of of the show and different um, aspects unique to me professionally and personally. Um, But that's been a good thing, but also not a good thing because I haven't really approached that the right way in general. And also when it comes to things like this show, it can be promoted or marketed in certain ways, but I've avoided at times thinking, well, it kind of will do it itself or it gets figured out when that's really not the case. And it is difficult for me to ask for things or try to take someone's attention or um, take up space. And that might be funny to you if you've been listening to me for the last 15 minutes um, talking straight, but that is something that I've experienced. When I read that, it really resonated both for me personally and it made sense that uh, people would have a hard time asking for people's attention, promoting themselves, marketing themselves, um, if they also have a hard time asking for things in general. So that that correlation made a lot of sense. So I thought that was great and something to keep in mind that if you want to uh, create your art, keeping it a secret, keeping it for yourself, you're not doing anyone any favors. Share it with the world, share it with people, people who like it, great. People that don't, it's not for them. And that's okay too, but make sure you allow for it to be seen and to be enjoyed and experienced by others. Uh, a whole chapter on death and God. And I thought that was um, really powerful. Um, she talks about God and how it doesn't have to be this capital G God of religions, but that it can be your own way of making sense of God or something bigger than yourself. But then this death um, section was also quite powerful, something I've talked about 
on the show a lot because I think if we don't take our death seriously, we won't take our life seriously. And she shares about the death positive movement um, and their two tenets, which are, I believe that by hiding death and dying behind closed doors, we do more harm than good to our society. And two, I believe that the culture of silence around death should be broken through discussion, gatherings, art, innovation, and scholarship. And uh, I totally agreed with that. I think we avoid death because it's this uncomfortable thing, makes us anxious. We want to pretend like it's not there. But I think it does make us take our lives less seriously because we do, by denying ourselves thinking about death, uh, get this sense that we live forever. There will always be time to do the things we want to do in some future without really taking every day and recognizing how precious and serious it is in the lives of others. Um, she actually shared something uh, interesting that she does. So she's first shared something that I do as well, sometimes working with a client or just in general, you can imagine them as a child. And that sometimes gives you some perspective and some more compassion or this reminder in general that everyone once was a little child can be quite powerful. But she says she also at times will think of people when they're much older or even shortly after their death. And it's not that she wishes death upon them or wishes anything negative upon them, but it is a way that it makes them feel even more human and allows her to feel more compassion and connection with them. So I hadn't thought about that. Uh, seeing someone as a child or a baby, I had done that and uh, made sense to me, but I hadn't heard about this other end of life. Maybe that was my own death avoidance or not thinking about that. But I thought that was interesting. It's something that I would have to process some more and think about, but could see myself utilizing. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, the book goes through these different themes that I think is not just relevant to artists. They were geared towards artists, but themes that I think we all might face in what we try to get done with our lives, whatever that might be. And so you can definitely sense her years of experience throughout the book working with her clients uh, being put into this book, which is Make Your Art No Matter What by Beth Pickens. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, was talking about the book Make Your Art No Matter What, Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles by Beth Pickens. And uh, the rest of the show, I'm going to stay in this theme um, of creativity and things of that sort. Now, the, what I want to talk about now is something that came to my mind recently looking at creativity and also then looking at conflict. And on last Friday's show, I was very happy to have my brother Parham here. Uh, he'll be teaching a class at Pepperdine University related to law and negotiation and related topics to actually the uh, educational doctoral students there. And so we talked a lot about conflict on Friday and fortunately didn't get into any major conflicts during the show, but we did discuss conflict at length. And um, a theme that came to my mind was this concept that creativity is conflict. Creativity is conflict, or looking at creativity as conflict, which uh, it might seem puzzling because we usually think of creativity as this good thing, and I obviously think it is, and then conflict as this bad thing. So when I say creativity is conflict, that can be a bit um, puzzling or may, may be a little bit, um, para sound paradoxical. And so now let me explain what I mean by that. So what is conflict? This is something we discussed on Friday's show. And to me, one way of looking at conflict is anytime there is some type of, type, some type of difference between 
It could be two people. It can also even be individual. I can have an inner conflict. We talk about that. So something where two parties, two sides disagree in some way that creates tension or has some kind of difference that creates tension. So an inner conflict, we all have these types of inner conflicts where it's like, I want to do something at the moment that might not be so good for me. And, um, and, but it does feel good, but there's another part of me that wants to do the thing that's better for me long-term. Let's say, uh, gambling and you're playing a game and you probably should stop, or maybe you shouldn't even start it, but then you have a hard time stopping yourself from playing some more. So in that moment, you might have an inner conflict. I should stop. I don't want to lose any more money. But another side of you says, oh, this is fun, or I want to win my money back. And so we have an inner conflict. So we see internally, we can even have conflict, but we can have bigger conflicts between two individuals, two groups, and of course, even things like two countries. And I'm sure someday, two galaxies or two different um, universes. So we can have these different conflicts at different levels, but it's always when the two parts want different things. When they want the same thing, there's no conflict. If you and your friend both want to do the same thing, no conflict. You want to do different things, that's when conflict can arise. And so what is creativity? So creativity, lots of ways to define that as well. Um, there's also there's one way of looking at creativity where it's not really something new, but it could be a new combination or new expression of things that already exist. And so I like that type of definition of creativity. So it is something new, but it's not like there's anything new under the sun. There's a new reconfiguration of things. People might combine something uh, that already existed with their own little twist on it. So that part of it is new, but it's some, not something that didn't, we could say complete, it's something that didn't exist before, but the components um, were there, but it will be a new way of doing things. So uh, why would creativity be conflict? Well, if you're doing something creative and it's adding something new, um, or it's changing the status quo of how art is being done, or some kind of art is being done, then in that way, it can be in conflict with how things are already being done. There is some tension there, right? So if we look at advancements in any kind of art, we sometimes see this explicit type of conflict between the people that do things the way it's been done, and that's even how it'll be presented. This is how we do things. And the person or persons or group or whatever it is, who are trying to modify or update in their mind or um, make it more modern, we would call it now, now it's considered modern art, let's say, because it's currently happening, because they want to add their twist to it. So sometimes we see this conflict play out actually between people, some kind of an interpersonal conflict where the two sides um, might actually get upset or have, you know, out outward conflict. But the reason why I think this also works in general is that internally you have to be willing to face this conflict of doing things in a different way uh, or in a new way or what's new, as I was saying, it might be reconfiguring things, but something that hasn't been done or hasn't quite been done the way you are now going to be doing it. And so there you might even feel this internal conflict. Do I um, trust myself to do this? make this new thing? Or who am I to challenge the way things are being done and create something different? Is this even good? 
Will people even like it or they'll be upset by it? All sorts of things might come up for someone, but to face this, you actually have to be able to accept this level of conflict of what you're doing. So we can imagine someone um, themselves expressing something, let's say a dancer, and they come up with a new type of movement or a new style, or they've been trained in a classical way, but they add something to it, or in the midst of being uh, listening to the music, something is expressed that's different from the status quo, different from how they were taught that this is how you should do it, an extra step or twist or turn or way of doing things. And so this creates this conflict because if they are to share this with the world, let's say share it with an instructor, share it in some way, they would be in conflict with how things are done, with how things are currently being done. And that is uh, a risk. There is something there. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that anytime someone does something different, it's always good. Um, activity does not mean progress, and novelty doesn't necessarily mean progress. So you can, um, you know, learn how to classically dance in a certain way and add something new to it. It's actually not always better. As I'm saying, that it reminds me of evolution. And one of the ways we can understand evolution and how it comes about is there are mutations that naturally happen within our DNA um, that then could change how, you know, an animal looks or something about their the expression of those genes. And most um, mutations, as the word would imply, are bad. I remember an anthropology teacher saying it's like if you throw a hammer at a computer and think that it's going to make the computer run better. Probably not. But every so often with all these um, different mutations that are happening all the time, some of them might be something better, might be something that leads to progress. And so evolution, we tend to think of it as something becoming better or becoming more fit, more fit to their environment. But most mutations lead to something that's harmful to that organism. It's not something beneficial. And creativity might have some of that. I wouldn't say it's as um, stark of a contrast that most new things will be worse. Um, but we do have to be willing to face these types of things where oftentimes it will be worse. And that's an openness both as an individual um, and as a you know society and as groups and people evaluating the people doing the art to, to have that space that often when we're trying to do new things, make advancements, often the new thing won't be good or that aspect of it might not be good, but if they reiterate it, it could get better and have that space to play and there needs to be some of that. So we have to be willing to face that conflict of things being first different, and that itself can create a tension. Even in some ways, I think that tension creates some of what creativity is. There's something within us that feels, within the artist, that feels like something's not quite right, and then they express it in this way, and then it also can create this conflict externally. Just like I can have something that doesn't feel right with a loved one, and I then express that, and they might not feel good, but it's something we then can deal with, and it actually can lead to progress. There are some similar themes there as well. And so the individual has to be willing to express this new thing, which will inevitably be conflictual with how things are being done. And then we have to respond to that. And so um, to me, this theme or concept of looking at creativity as conflict, um, on one hand, even as I say that, I could see how it might discourage someone that they don't want to be in conflict or create conflict or it makes it seem like creativity is bad. But to me, this goes back to how I see um, human experience and existence in general, that conflict is something 
we have to accept, as I was saying earlier, even internally, there are going to be conflicts if we're being real with ourselves. Internally, I might have a conflict even, you know, to, you know, bringing it to this artistic side where maybe there's something I want to express, but it's not who, quote unquote, who I am. I'm not the kind of person who is making art or, you know, looking at Beth Pickens and her definition of an artist as someone who makes art. That's not me. I'm not someone who makes art or I'm not someone who's an artist. So I can't do that. So we often actually have these internal conflicts that we avoid that then actually don't even let us live our life to the fullest. And so in general, we have to have tolerance and space for conflict of all kinds in order to live a good life, to live a full life, and to have fulfilling relationships. If we're avoiding conflict with others because it's tense in the moment, it doesn't feel good in the moment, our relationships suffer considerably. They will allow for things to build and resentments to build. We're losing opportunities to repair things and actually make things stronger. That repairing is actually how things get stronger. Imagine like uh, a tear in fabric, and if you sew it up, it can be even stronger than before it had that tear. Um, the same thing is true of our relationships. We actually um, repair and get stronger, or uh, the analogy I often use with muscles, that how does a muscle get stronger? You have microscopic tears that get repaired, and the muscle gets bigger and stronger. And so conflict is the same way in relationships. Yes, you can have a really bad conflict that damages the relationship, just like you can have a really bad exercise that tears a muscle in a way that's actually not healthy and needs healing. That's something different. But when we have conflicts and do them in the right way, it does lead to progress and strength in the muscle, but also in our relationships. And so similarly, if we look at art, the, the worst thing for any kind of art is for it to stay static, to feel like it can't change, that it has to be this way, it was always this way, and no one should do anything about it. When we see art uh, improve, it's actually when different artists from different types of uh, schools of thought and ways of doing things combine and recombine and learn from each other and take from each other to make something more wonderful, more beautiful. So conflict is a natural part of life that we have to embrace. When you have any um, individuals who are different from each other and next to each other, interacting with each other, differences and conflict have to arise. It's something we have to not just uh, hope it doesn't happen. We have to expect it to happen. It's about how will we respond to the conflicts, not if they're going to happen. Um, but then coming back to the theme of this segment, looking at creativity as conflict, I think is something uh, important to keep in mind, that we have to be ready for that as individuals and as uh, groups and society at large, that when people are creative, if we want to create them, uh, encourage them to be creative, then we have to be ready for that type of conflict that sometimes we won't like what they do. Sometimes we'll disagree with it. And our opinion is just one of many. Um, but that the only way we're going to have progress is to leave space for that conflict that creativity inevitably entails, that we have to leave that in order for it to happen. So creativity is conflict, but it might sound like that's a bad thing, but it's actually quite good. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, uh, as I mentioned, the theme today has been art, creativity, and uh, I wanted to end the show talking about a, a recent experience for myself or a new uh, challenge I've taken on. I don't know, that maybe sounds too dramatic, but I basically signed up for an improv class. Maybe I should say it that way. And I'm uh, really excited. I've only had two of them so far, 
but I uh, wanted to share about the the experience of just starting something like that um, and r- related topics of improv and life, which I've also discussed before. So uh, it's like many things I've, um, I think we've all experienced where you want to do something or you've thought of doing something, but I thought of taking an improv class for a while. I think uh, improv, maybe explain what that is. Many of you might be familiar with it. If you're not, uh, improv, it's short for improvisation or improvisational comedy. So improvisation means that there is no script and essentially there might be some rules or some framework, but there's no script of what you're going to do or what the actors in the scene are going to play out. So they play off of each other to co-create a scene and a whole world and hopefully something humorous, but there is the improv part means that there's no script beforehand. And so um, I've wanted to do this for a while. I think it's interesting. I think uh, improv, as I'll talk about, it's not just about comedy or just about um, performing improvisational comedy because life is improv. Uh, so I wanted to do this for a while, find it fun, but I'd put it off. Then I wanted to do it during the pandemic. It was something you would have to do on Zoom, and that seemed like not the right way to do improv comedy. So then I just put it off and then recently was inspired by a few different people to just jump back into it. And then so when I wanted to finally sign up for a class, um, there's so many ways we avoid these types of things that I was I was facing a few new ones or not new ones, but new ones for this, which was, oh, well, let me find the right class. And so let me find, you know, which group and there's You know, as you can imagine in Los Angeles, many different schools for these kinds of things. And so which one's the best one and do some research. And then I kind of stopped myself and said, you know what, let me just pick one and go forward. One of the ones that is more well known. And, you know, so that probably can't be a bad place to start. Uh, Then it was like the scheduling. Well, you know, it's going to interfere with my day. And then, you know, traffic, that's a big thing in L.A. When you're trying to get from place to place, what's the right time to avoid traffic or to minimize traffic and all this. So I found myself having these blocks that were stopping me. Um, And a few people encouraged me and, you know, someone gave me an accountability and I told them, okay, I'm going to sign up by tonight. And so I let them know I would sign up by that night. And sure enough, I did. I picked one. The timing wasn't perfect. I actually will be going again tomorrow night. But none of the timings were going to be perfect. If I was waiting for that, I wouldn't be able to take a class. Um, It would involve some level of inconvenience no matter what. That's just part of it. So I'm glad I I did that. So there was those things. So if you're looking at something you want to do, as I was mentioning in this book, Beth Pickens talks about different hurdles that people can have. And time is a big one. We think we don't have the time to make it happen or the time to get there or we should use the time in other places, but very often that's an excuse. So I found myself facing those. Uh, As much as I think of myself as someone who does a lot of improv just in life and also can be silly and humorous with people, so I feel like improv is something I kind of do uh, in a more just casual way. Um, It was nice to go into a class and really be a beginner. So this was the introductory class. And me and all the other students in the class are introductory students new to improv. And it feels kind of good to be starting something at that base level and to be a student in something. Um, I have different roles in my life that involve at times teaching or being more on that side of things. And I thought this is actually quite nice to be 
the student and to be learning from someone with experience in this field and also experience teaching something like this, a creative type of pursuit. And, and that was cool. Also, the class itself, not to get too much into the details, but, you know, it's fun because you, you get to play. That's what um, improv is all about. You just get in there. You're trying to not think so much and just be there are some cool themes. One that definitely applies to life. A big improv theme is called Yes And, which means that when you're in a scene, whatever your partner does, you say yes to it. And then the and is you're adding to it, adding to the world, adding to the scene, rather than other things like no, but, where it's like they give you something and you say, no, I don't like that. Let's go somewhere else. Or yes, but, where you say yes, but you want to change something. So this big theme in improv is called Yes And, which I think is a great theme for life. It doesn't mean be inauthentic or lie to the person you're communicating with, but to take what they give you and also play with it, not to just negate it or push it aside as we often do. So that's a, a theme I'd read about before when it comes to improv. Yes, and, or yes, anding. Sometimes they say it to make it kind of like a verb, um, but we've been practicing that in this course. So really fun. Um, I realized after the first class, I also tried to let go of uh, my perfectionism of how did I even do in the class or was I funny or, you know, how did I perform and remind myself that um, it's not about that. And of course, it was the first class to begin with. But even above that, I'm taking the class to learn these skills not to do well in the class or each section of the class or each meeting of the class and to let go of that and really uh, be in the moment. So it's kind of interesting because improv itself is about being in the moment. So I wanted to be in the moment about this class. It's about being in the moment. So that was an interesting experience for me too. And I felt that, and I've only had two classes. And so the second one felt the same way, um, but it was really fun to play. And I realized the, the morning after the first class, uh, I wanted to do it again. And so that to me was a, a great sign that it's obviously something I enjoyed. I think it was fun to, to be in that playing space and to express. Um, but definitely that was a sign to me that this is something that I should uh, continue and I want to continue. So that was, that was fun. So looking forward to that, have I think six more classes. Yeah, there's eight total. Um, and then the graduation is a performance. So that's exciting, of course, anxiety provoking, but very exciting. So looking forward to that. Um, but the rest of the segment and the rest of the show wanted to talk about uh, improv in life and how we want to live our life as an improv and to live it as unscripted as possible. So what does that mean? Of course, in life, we don't um, have a script unless you're on reality TV, which I know it's supposed to just be real, but sometimes there is a script. Um, but we don't have an actual script we follow, but we might recognize if we take a closer look at how we live and communicate with people around us that a lot of what we do might be based on scripts we've been given in different ways. So some might be just more societal scripts of, okay, this is how you greet each other and what's okay and not okay to say, or here are phrases that you should use because other people use them. Um, also then with your uh, different people in your life, you might have certain scripts. Again, they're not like actual scripts and they're not verbatim, but of ways you communicate and ways you don't communicate and uh, how we do things and all of that. Um, now, this isn't to say culture and customs are bad or to have rituals and routines is bad. So um, often with these things, we can get into black and white that it's um, supposed to all be a certain way or all be another way. 
uh, often with these things, what I've recognized is we'll notice something that people do, a tendency. And because most people do it a certain way, we encourage them to go the other way because we see that that's lacking. For example, uh, I read a book a week, but something that I can recognize is most people think they should read more. So I would encourage most people to read more. Now, there could be someone who reads too much and is avoiding the rest of their life, and that for them, reading more is actually a bad thing, and they might need to read less or exercise more. Most people don't exercise enough, so we need that encouragement. We generally give that type of um, advice because we want to encourage people to work out more because most people are not working out enough. But again, there could be someone who works out too much and for them working out more might be a problem. So maybe they want to be mindful of that. And actually, that's the last one I'll talk about before I change uh, the topic is being mindful. So um, most of us are not mindful enough. We are too preoccupied with the past or the future. I can definitely relate to that. I was feeling that today and someone pointed it out to me. Um, We can be very preoccupied with things and are not mindful enough. And so there's always these encouragements of, and books and people giving talks on being more mindful. And most of us would benefit from that. But actually, mindfulness even is something we have to have in balance. You know, we think of it as just this good thing and this always good thing to go towards. But there's even times where we need to be out of the moment, and that's okay, or not fully in the moment. Or you can imagine if you had a doctor's appointment and the doctor showed up three hours late and says, oh, I was you know, having a, mi- a conversation with someone. I was so mindful that I forgot about our appointment or I showed up late. You'd be quite upset. You'd like for them to have you know, some way of being a little bit, not fully 100% in the moment enough to be able to be aware of other things that were going on circumstantially. And so there could be times where we actually don't need to be fully, fully in the moment or could benefit from being away from it. But again, because most of us are far from that, the general advice is to be more mindful, be more mindful, be in the moment is something that most of us would benefit from. So similarly here, it's the same thing that when I say improv your life, it doesn't mean that every time you go into a moment, it has to be fresh and new and you can never repeat the same thing or, um, you know, you shouldn't have any routines or customs. That's definitely not true. You know, customs can feel quite nice or even having a routine with someone can feel quite nice. We always do this together at 7 p.m. and we, you know, enjoy this. That's not necessarily, uh, that could be actually quite good. Not even that I should say necessarily, that can be a really wonderful thing. So it's about recognizing that probably most of us live our life way more scripted than would benefit us that we don't allow ourselves to be in the moment as much. So I was just saying about mindfulness. So again, here we apply that here where you could be too, you know, not letting anything ever sit and and be um, stable. But in general, most of us are not being as mindful as we could be in, in each interaction where when I'm talking to someone, interacting with them, am I just saying what I think is the right thing to say or what I'm supposed to say? Or am I actually uh, tuning into myself to see what feels authentic in that moment? And a note there about this authentic self. We often talk about the authentic self as if it's a static thing. Find your authentic self and then be that authentic self and then you've achieved it like some graduation. When that's not the case, the authentic self is being genuinely you in every moment, responding to the moment. So there isn't just some fixed thing. And actually thinking of it as fixed would make you more unauthentic because what we really are is much more complex than someone who's always going to do the same thing. That would actually be, again, being less authentic or more scripted. I'm someone who doesn't get silly, or I'm someone who doesn't get angry, or I'm someone who does this or always does this or never does this. 
that's actually being less authentic. So if we're being more in this improv state of mind, it means that I'm tuning into myself and responding with what feels right in that moment, what's natural to me. Uh, this could be with strangers or someone, you know, at the coffee shop, but it also could be with loved ones. We very often might not realize the scripts we have in our relationship or how deeply we get embedded of this, the dynamics that I'm the, I'm this in this relationship. I'm the nice one. You're the, this one, you're the one with the power. I'm the one with that, whatever it might be. There are these scripts that we have and we're reading from and we think we have to read from, um, but we don't, we don't have to follow that script. If we're going to be genuinely in the moment and being more in this improv state of mind, we're actually going to respond with what's going on within us rather than responding how we quote unquote are supposed to respond. Um, and actually looking at the scripts can be very informative. When I work with couples, uh, often we'll recognize that their fights turn into these scripted battles where, you know, sometimes I joke, once the fight starts, you both grab your scripts and read from it because they have the same fight over and over again. And if they actually dig a little deeper, they'll see it's because something is going on there. They want to be the one that's uh, giving more in the relationship than their partner is. So they go there or the other one wants to be the one that's um, always being nagged and that's what they want to talk about rather than genuinely looking at what's going on or seeing if they can go a layer deeper rather than reading from those scripts. So uh, I'll conclude, you know, this is a theme or a topic I think is quite um, important and interesting. So I'm sure it'll come up again in future episodes. But um, I'll conclude by, first of all, I think you know, I don't think there's something that's good for everyone, but I really do think improv would be good for many people to take as a class, um, just even as a basic level, because even if you don't consider yourself humorous or don't want to go there, again, you probably are funnier than you think, but if you don't want to even pursue it in any way, just as something that makes you more in touch with yourself and different aspects of yourself, um, of responding in the moment, and in general, whether or not you take the class, I hope you will. Um, just the thought of recognizing how you can live your life more towards an improv rather than a scripted play. And to live it more as an improv mean you're responding more authentically to first yourself, but to others. And to me, this will be a much more fulfilling and alive and lively type of a life than a scripted one that's going to be more dull and dead. So again, this doesn't mean it's black and white to always and only be improv and if you're ever repeating yourself, that's something wrong. That's not going to be true. But to move more towards this improvisational type of living where we're being more in the moment and more attuned to ourselves and expressing what's going on within. But that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.